Oh, hi there. Sorry, I was uh, watching a show that I enjoyed a lot when I was a kid. If you're not familiar with it, the movie is called The Neverending Story. And in the, uh, in the movie, um, and this is based on a book, a kid, a bullied kid, finds a book in a bookstore and he begins reading it. And it's this fantastic story uh, that takes place in his imagination. In his imagination. Uh, but then he starts to discover that he's himself something of a part of the story. Uh, and he helps the uh, characters in the story to avoid something called the nothing from completely destroying their universe. Anyway, you might want to check it out if you haven't seen it already. I've heard that the sequel really sucks, and I haven't seen it, so um, uh, I, I, I wouldn't. I'm not going to recommend that you see that. But I would. I would encourage you to check out the Neverending Story if you haven't. Um, now, the question that we're going to ask today is related to this, as you will see. And that question is: In what way is creation like the Neverending Story? That's the question that we'll look at today in this episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate those of you who are tuning in live. And as usual, I will also appreciate those of you who watch the show after it has streamed. Um, obviously, uh, I did not, I was not accidentally stumbled upon while watching The NeverEnding Story. Uh, I'm trying out this thing at the sort of a cold open for my shows uh, in which I am uh pretend I'm, i i want to make it somewhat interesting to dive into the show and uh trying to come up with something <laughs> to kind of do something a little fun at the beginning of the show hopefully that's not too geeky too too cheesy um but i really but but the the issue of the never-ending story the concept of it will indeed be relevant to today's episode before we dive into today's episode though i do want to say a few things firstly um i have over the past couple of weeks begun a series in this channel Channel, uh, uh, that I'm calling Biblical Hebrew 101. By the way, uh, if you are in the chat, could you please give me a heads up that the sound and video is all good? Uh, I could not hear my intro video when I transitioned to it from my cold open, and so I'm a little nervous that maybe my sound isn't working properly. Um, thanks, Jamie. I appreciate that. So, um, so yeah, if you're somebody that wants to learn biblical Hebrew, uh, but and, and at a seminary quality, like um, uh, you don't just want to try to pick it up through some websites, not that websites are necessarily a bad place to do it, but you know, you want a seminary quality and, and you want to go through the content and learn what uh, seminary students would learn if they were going through uh, biblical Hebrew. Well, if that's you, but you don't have the time or the money to be able to afford a um, brick and mortar traditional institution you know type of degree um then why don't you tune into my series in this channel called biblical hebrew 101 i've done two episodes in the series so far i introduced the hebrew alphabet or as i call it the hebrew alphabet in the first episode of the series and then a few days later i had a practice session where i go through some flashcards and some workbook exercises to help those you know so if you've watched the first 
lecture, then you can watch this review uh, afterwards uh, after you've studied it for a little bit and get some practice to help sort of ref uh, better master the content for that lecture. And then I did a second lecture on the vowels in um, Biblical Hebrew, and then I did a follow-up to that with practice, and we're going to start getting into nouns in the next episode of the series. So if you want to learn Biblical Hebrew, now's a great time to uh, to start, and um, you're going to be going through the exact same kind of material, the same kind of content that you would get in a first-year Biblical Hebrew course at a seminary, um, but hopefully, I'm, hopefully it'll be even better than what you might have uh, that you might have received there. Um, of course, I'm biased, <laughs> being the one who's presenting this material, but um, but I'm trying to make it uh, the best it, it absolutely can be. So I hope you'll check that out. Uh, I don't know when I'll get to lecture number three, probably sometime later this week. The second thing I wanted to say is just as a reminder, this show, The Apologetics, is part of a network of shows called The Trinity Commission. On my thumbnails up in the top uh, left corner, there's a little blue circle with a microphone. That's the Trinity Commission logo. And it's a commission of shows that includes Trinity Radio, which is the, um, the show hosted by the president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, Braxton Hunt and sometimes co-hosted by Vice President of Academics for Trinity, Jonathan Pritchett. Um, it's also the network of which uh, Leighton Flowers' Soteriolo Soteriology 101 is a part. It's also the uh, network of which Bible Brodown is a part, and The Narrow Path um, with uh, Steve Gregg, and presumably over time additional shows will be added. So I would highly encourage you to check out those other shows. I may disagree, and in some cases very strongly disagree, with some of the uh, focuses, foci of, the, of some of those shows, most particularly Soteriology. Theology 101. Um, but, uh, 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 sorry, I got distracted by a question in the chat, and I'll answer that in a moment. Um, oh, man. Oh, yeah. So I may disagree with them, but I, these are great men, and if, if there's ever a woman host on, on you know added to the network, then great men and women um, who I respect, admire, and consider friends, and so I would encourage you to check those out. Again, Trinity Radio, uh, Soteriology 101, the Narrow Path, Bible Bro Down, and least of all, the show you're watching now, The Apologetics. Also, if you do want to spend the time and money on a degree, but you don't have the 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 uh, the kind of money you would have to spend at more um, uh, traditional institutions, accredited institutions, but you still want to get a high quality uh, Christian education, then do check out that school I mentioned a moment ago that Braxton Hunter is the president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. I'm a professor there, um, working on lectures for Biblical Hebrew that will be based on the ones that I'm publishing in this channel, uh, and it's an affordable but very rigorous and um, stimulating both mental, both intellectually and spiritually uh, education, um, all for a, a decent price. And see, Susan in the chat is actually mentioning one of the things I've already mentioned in my uh, very first Biblical Hebrew 101 lecture, the Begad Kathatz consonants. Um, those of you who are uh, familiar with Biblical Hebrew will know what we're referring to there. If not, go check out that series. All right. Uh, to answer your question, Jamie, about is it being critical to see the screen, yes, because you need to be able to see the consonants, the vowels, um, the forms of words, things like that. If you cannot watch, then um, then you're not probably going to get much out of it. Um, you might be able to take some other course uh, on 
conversational Hebrew where it's much more about what's going on in your ear. But in the case of biblical Hebrew, the whole point is to be able to read. Uh, so you're not going to get much out of it if you can't watch. Um, but Jamie, if I'm not mistaken, you are considering getting that uh, or subscribing to that resource that I introduced people to a couple of weeks ago called Biblingo. Um, I, would, I would encourage you to use that because that's going to get you pretty far in, um, in biblical Hebrew uh, even if you can't see a whole lot of the screen, although I don't think you'll be able to uh, do a lot of reading um, using that if you can't see the screen. Okay, I'm, I've been a little bit rambling. Let's dive into our um, topic today, and, and let me tell you what's what we're going to be doing. Um, I have for a few years now uh, had a um, conception, had had an idea of what the relationship between God and creation is like. Um, not, it's not identical to this, but it's like something and it's an analogy that has helped me to, um, understand and appreciate the relationship between God and creation in a way that no other analogy I think has, has, has done. Um, I haven't given a whole lot of thought to the various, um, applications of this analogy until recently with the exception of one area and that's, uh, soteriology and that's something we'll be discussing. But that analogy is the analogy of a the uh, the author of a story and the story that the author authors, all right? Um, and and I decided a few weeks ago that I wanted to, or not a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, that I wanted to start a series. Uh, actually, I don't even think I had originally planned on doing a series. I had planned on doing one episode, like we're going to do today, introducing this analogy and doing some application with it. Um, but then, after I scheduled this episode, I was on the phone with Braxton Hunter, whom I mentioned earlier, and we spent a good hour talking about this analogy. Um, he was playing the devil's advocate at times and things like that. And, um, and he thought it would be great if uh, he thinks a lot of listeners would enjoy hearing a conversation uh, between him, him and me, Braxton and me, on this issue. Um, they, they probably enjoy hearing a lot of the things that we were discussing in that episode. And so we scheduled um, to have him come on the on the next episode of my show, two weeks from today, on December 28th, to uh, to discuss the the analogy that I will be going through today. And so that's going to be exciting. So come in, come back two weeks from today when Braxton and I will be live discussing this analogy and some of its uh, drawbacks, maybe some of its flaws, some of its strengths, and some of the ways that it might be um, helpfully applied. And then, um, right around this same time, I was I discovered or I saw a post. I noticed a post on Facebook from a Facebook friend of mine. Um, about a master's thesis, I think it is, that he is submit, submitting on the very issue of this analogy, the analogy of God as the author of a story. Um, <laughs> Shannon laughs at drawbacks. I'm sorry. Well, you, you, can, you can think it's got drawbacks when it comes to determinism, but you're going to find, as uh, momentarily in this show, um, that it really is the best analogy we have, but we'll come to that. Anyway, um, so, so anyway, I saw this, this, this guy on Facebook, a Facebook friend of mine, post uh, that he was submitting a master's thesis on this very issue of the analogy of God as author of a story, and specifically as it pertains to whether God is the author of sin. Um, because, of course, the Westminster Confession and others say that God is, he preordains all that takes place in time, but not so as to be the author of sin. 
Um, and I asked him if I could have a copy and he let me have a copy and I'm just absolutely fascinated by it. And so I invited him to come on the show to do a part three of the series that we are starting today. Uh, his name is Parker Setacase. Um, I will be uh, telling you more about where you can find him online in that discussion. That will be four weeks from today on January 11th. Now, I don't know if I will do any more episodes in this series on the God as author analogy, um, but uh, these three episodes, I think, are going to make for a really fascinating exploration and um, discussion about this analogy, the analogy of God as the author of a story. And so to prepare us for my live discussion with Braxton Hunter and my discussion with Parker Setacase and potentially a fourth episode in the series, because I really do, as I said, for years now, I've been using the analogy to think about um, the relationship between God and creation in uh, with respect to determinism, to Calvinism. Um, and so I, I do think I'll probably do a fourth and final episode in this series after the discussions with Braxton and Parker, specifically on how this and what this analogy might have to say about the Calvinism, non-Calvinism debate, the determinism versus libertarianism debate, that kind of thing. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy this first episode and that it will begin, that it will um, get you interested enough in an exploration of this analogy to tune into the next two episodes where it's going to be even more interesting because you're going to be hearing from more than just me, minds than just me all right but what we're going to do today to sort of set the ground set the foundation set the groundwork for these discussions with Braxton and Parker is I'm going to first um, try to justify the analogy of um, the author of a story and the story as a as an analogy for the relationship between God and creation I'm going to attempt to justify it and then I'm just going to sort of um, suggest a few incohate meaning un underdeveloped ideas about how the how this analogy might bear some fruit in our work as theologians and as apologists that's our agenda for today I'm going to try to justify the analogy I'm going to try to, uh, and then I'm going to try to suggest some fruitful ways we might be able to apply it. But just as a beginning, just just as a starting point for us to think through this together and talk through it together. And then lastly, I'm going to offer some resources that you can go to to read more. Uh, Brighter Minds and I have who've published on this very analogy and applied it in ways that I won't have time to cover today. Um, so hopefully you can check some of those out um, and then come back two weeks from today to, to, to listen to Braxton and me discuss the analogy further. All right, I've, that's a lot of introduction, um, but let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, and, and what we're trying to do with this analogy is to try and capture as best as possible the relationship between God and creation. And normally, uh, just on, on a sort of day-to-day -day basis, I think that most of us Christians probably think of the relationship between God and creation as merely the, the, the fact that God has created creation. And if that were all that we needed to capture with an analogy, then we might suffice to think of it uh, in terms of something like the sculptor of a sculpture or the painter of a painting. Um, hopefully some of you will recognize the painter on the right there. He's a bit, uh, he's a bit famous uh, or was. I mean, he is, is still, but I don't think he's alive any longer. But as tempting as it might be, as natural as it might be for us to think about 
the relationship between God and creation as something like the relationship between one of these kinds of creators, the creator of a sculpture or the creator of a painting, there are a number of really fundamental flaws that make these inappropriate analogies. Uh, perhaps most particularly, creation is dynamic. What I mean by that is that creation obviously is not one still frame in a movie, for example. It's not one, uh, one instant in time in which nothing moves or changes. It's dynamic. And so we add a little bit more to... No, Jamie, this, um, this thesis I do... Well, I'm not going to answer the question of whether th this analogy requires uh, determinism. That may be an implication of it, and that's something that I will probably discuss with Braxton and Parker. All right. Anyway, so the problem with thinking of God as something like the crafter of a sculpture or the painter of a painting, um, that the problem is that creation is dynamic. And so we need to add to our conception of this relation the fact that creation is dynamic. It experiences and it acts. No static statue or sculpture, no static Im, uh, immovable or unmoving painting is going to um, capture the, uh, the reality that creation experiences and acts. So then what analogy might we think about? Well, we might incline towards something like the creator of a robot or the creator of a self-driving car, right? Um, the software in a self-driving car, uh, it, it acts, right? It, it moves the car around and any people that are in it. A robot moves and, and it observes, even if the observation is mechanistic. It's just, it's just firing uh, uh, transistors or whatever on a, on, a, uh, on, a, on a motherboard that receives input from visual and auditory sensors or whatever. But still, it's, 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 a, it's not only a creation, it's also a creation that in some sense of the word experiences and acts. But we've still got a fundamental problem, multiple, but, but at least one fundamental problem with this kind of analogy, and that is that creation is dependent upon God. Not merely in the sense that um, it wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for the Creator, but rather it will not exist at any moment if it, if it isn't for the creator, right? Uh, 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 the, the designer of a robot can die and the robot can keep moving, right? The creator of the factory that builds a self-driving car can shut down and the car is going to st keep still being used. But what do we read in scripture? We see that God gives present tense an ongoing basis, gives to all humankind life and breath and everything. And, and Paul even approvingly quotes a Greek philosopher saying, in him, that is God, we live and move and have our very being. The author of Hebrews, uh, that, that was Paul at the Areopagus, by the way, in Acts 17. The author of Hebrews in chapter one, verse three says that God upholds, actually says the son, Christ, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we need to update our conception a little bit more by adding that God upholds creation at every moment that creation exists. So now we have a relation that includes not just creation and not just the experience and, and ongoing experience and actions of the creation, but also we need to capture the fact that God upholds creation at all times. And that leads us to some further possible analogies. 
For example, the uh, puppeteer and his or her marionette. Or the uh, baby inside its mother's womb. Right? The, um, the only way the puppet does anything at all is, is when the puppeteer is moving it. Right? Directing it. Moving it around. So there's a sense in which the puppeteer depends on, its actions depend on, at all times, the actions of the puppeteer. Similarly, um, in, in, at least to a certain degree, that baby inside its mother's womb is dependent upon the mother. If you, so to speak, unplug the baby from the mother and you don't have a, an artificial womb sitting around, then um, that baby will not survive. It is, it is He or she is dependent absolutely on its mother, uh, barring any sort of either supernatural or technological intervention. Um, so, so these analogies capture the, the aspect of this relation that is God upholding creation, but there's still a number of flaws, including perhaps most notably that God is transcendent. You see, God is not on the same plane with, the, on the same plane of existence with, let alone inside of his creation, right? God is beyond, above, outside of creation. We could see that, for example, in that in the beginning, Genesis 1-1 says, God created. There was a beginning to time. And God created that beginning. So God was not just there in the beginning, but he created the beginning, right? He was, be, he was even further back, as it were, than the beginning itself. Um, similarly, uh, we see the same thing in John 1.1, and then a couple of verses later, we see John writing that all things, including presumably time itself, were made through the Word. And then in 1 Kings 8.27, we read that heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. There is nothing um, within creation that can contain God. He's above it, beyond it, outside of it. And the idea, the, the analogies of a puppeteer and its puppet, or a mother and her child still in utero, those analogies don't capture this transcendent aspect of God in his relation to creation. So that might so 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 now we update our diagram. Our relation between God and creation is not merely one of creation. It's not merely one in which creation experiences an axe. It's not merely one in which God upholds creation. It's also one in which God transcends creation. And this might lead us to think that perhaps an analogy like one of these might capture this relationship between God and creation. If you're not aware, if you're not a gamer like I am, the image on your left is a screenshot from World of Warcraft. Uh, it's not a game I play, um, but it is uh, a game that uh, is similar to other games I've played, like EverQuest or EverQuest 2 or Guild Wars. I mean, there's a whole host of these, what are called MMORPGs, multi or massively multiplayer online role-playing games. And the idea is there's the the the, the creator of the world, the, the Warcraft world, is not um, within or even on the same plane as the world of Warcraft. The creator transcends it, right? Um, in in at least some sense. And similarly, on the right, there is this is a screenshot from one or one of the versions of The Sims, or at least a game like 
the Sims, right? Where you've got a a world in which these little um, uh, uh, avatar is not the right word, but these 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 non-player characters are moving around and doing things, and then of course you can even control a character, an avatar, in the world of the Sims. But again, the the Sims, the world of the Sims, is not something in which the player of the Sims and the creator of the Sims exist. The creator and any player is outside, beyond, transcends the world of the Sims. So we might be inclined to think, gosh, maybe maybe we're onto something here. But we've still got at least one fundamental problem, even with an analogy like this. And that is, God is omnipresent and omnitemporal. You see, in, in the world of Warcraft, um, the creator and any individual player is only ever in one place within the world of Warcraft, and only at that time. The same is true of The Sims, although arguably, you know, you can fast forward The Sims, and if you could rewind The Sims, then theoretically, you could still get to any moment in The Sims, but you still wouldn't be at all places within The Sims at once, and you certainly aren't at all times within the world of The Sims at once. Right? You have to fast forward or to rewind to get to whatever part of it you're, you want to be in at any given moment. And you have to move the map around in order to see whatever you want to at any particular moment. Whereas God is omnipresent and omnitemporal. That's why in Jeremiah 23, in Jeremiah 23, 24, Yahweh says, Did I not, do I not fill heaven and earth? He's everywhere in creation. The psalmist in Psalm 139 asks rhetorically, where shall I flee from your presence? There's nowhere he can go. In fact, that passage says, whether I go to Sheol below or heaven above, you are there. So there's the omnipresence part, and then you've got the omnitemporality part in 2 Peter 3.8, which itself is sort of building upon one of the Psalms when Peter writes, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You see, it's not merely that God experiences a very long period of time as if it's a very short one, or that he experiences a very short period of time as if it were actually very long. That's not the point. The point is that time is completely subject to God. It is, he is at all times. And that's why one day is as a thousand years, because he can, um, one day in, um, in, uh, in, in the experience of the Lord, as it were, could fit a thousand years in it, but at the exact same time, a thousand years, as it were, in, in, you know, in God's experience, would be like a blip, a single day in human time. The, this reciprocal back and forth, uh, converse relationship between one day and a thousand years and a thousand years in one day is an indication that God is omnitemporal. He is at all times simultaneously. So we have to update our conception still a little more. We have to say it's not merely that God creates creation. It's not merely that creation experiences and acts. It's not merely that God upholds creation. It's not merely that God transcends creation. It's also that God is everywhere and every time at all, all, all over creation. There's no place and no time in creation where God is not. And that leads us, therefore, to what I can find to be the only um, 
analogy that captures that captures all of these things. The only the, the there is no other analogy I've encountered that can that can capture this the all these aspects of the God creation relation, and that is the relationship between an author and his or her story. So here on the screen, you've got J.R.R. Tolkien, a picture of him on the left, and on the right, you've got uh, a, a movie poster from one of the movies in the Lord of the Rings series, which of course are based on the story that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote. And I think that this kind of relationship, um, it, as we'll see, it, it captures those things. You, you see, um, the 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 author is the one who creates the story so there we've got the creation part of the relation the the characters in the story experience an act right there is a timeline in the story so you've got that um the 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 story only really truly exists um at least i'm going to make a caveat here in a moment so bear with me but only exists provided that tolkien deems that it exists um, again, I'll, I'll caveat that. I'll justify that in a moment. Uh, so we've got the upholding part of it. We've got the, um, uh, the transcendent aspect because J.R.R. Tolkien is neither in the same world as or even on, in a world that's on the same plane as Middle-earth, right? Earth transcends Middle-earth. Creation transcends Middle-earth. So you've got the transcendence aspect. And at any given time and place in the story of uh, Lord of the Rings that takes place in Middle-earth, Tolkien is there. He knows every single thing that is going on at every single place and at every single time in the story. All at once. So this is the relationship I want to, this is the analogy I want to explore as what I'm arguing to be the best not flawless, but the best analogy for the relationship between God and creation. Now, let me get to some of those caveats. When I talk about the author uh, being the creator and the story being the creation, I'm not talking about a story that is, has been printed and is then being read by someone else. And I'm not talking about the story that is being that is manifesting in a hearer's mind as the storyteller is telling it. And this is, this is that caveat I was saying a moment ago, because yes, the story of Lord of the Rings, in a profound sense, continues to exist even beyond the death of J.R.R. Tolkien, but that's only because, number one, he published it, and number two, the publication outlives him. But, of course, when we talk about the relationship between God and creation, only God exists outside of creation. Everything, not just humans, not just the cosmos, but heaven itself, the heaven in which angels dwell, and angels themselves, these are all creation. They're inside creation, but God is outside it, and none other, no other, is outside of creation. So I'm not talking about stories in this these senses, nor am I talking about the story as it's being written, like on a laptop or on a typewriter or even on a pen and paper, or... Um, I, and I'm also not talking about the story as it's playing out in the author's imagination. I'm not talking about these either. And the reason is because, again, God is omnipresent and omnitemporal. You see, if I were talking about the story as it's being written, or if I were talking about the story as it is playing out in the author's imagination, then the author is only really at one time and place in, in the story. 
whatever time and place is currently being written on the page or whatever time and place is currently featuring in his imagination. But we're talking about God being omnipresent and omnitemporal. So we're not talking about a story and its author in this sense either. Rather, you see, uh, what I'm trying to say here is that the timeline of Middle-earth and the timeline in which J.R.R. Tolkien exists, or existed, they're not merely parallel timelines, let alone one leading into the other or anything like that. But, but, but anyway, they're not parallel timelines. And by the way, I had to look this up. I, I know I reference the Lord of the Rings a lot in my various debates and books and, and, and shows and things, but I'm really not that big of a Lord of the Rings nerd, and I would not have been able to tell you about these different um, ages in the, story, in the timeline of Lord of the Rings if I hadn't Googled it just a few hours ago. But nevertheless, in the timeline of Middle-earth and the Lord of the Rings series, not just the Lord of the Rings, but the Hobbit that comes before it, the Silmarillion that, that takes place even before that, um, you've got this succession of ages. You've got something called the Years of the Trees, and then you've got First, Second, Third, and Fourth Ages. And by the way, um, the, uh, the, story, the, the part of the story where Sauron creates the one ring and is starting to take over that's taking place in the second age in the middle earth timeline and what we are familiar with the storyline of the hobbit and the lord of the rings that's taking place in the third age just in case you were curious but the point of this is that these are not parallel timelines the the one timeline is not happening at the same time as the timeline is being experienced by J.R.R. tolkien rather that whole thing that entire timeline and everything that happens in it all is uh, accessible to, is known by J.R.R. Tolkien at an instant in time. Now, of course, in, in reality, J.R.R. Tolkien is building this story more and more over time. But I'm just saying, if, if he were given enough time to, or let's say that at the moment before he died, whatever canon existed for the timeline of Middle-earth... That entire timeline and all of the events in it, all the characters in it, all places and all times were known by the J.R.R. Tolkien in that very instant. That is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the story author, uh, the, the author story analogy as an analogy for the relation between God and creation. At an instant, all of history from the moment of creation all the way into, uh, you know, from, from creation to the fall, to the incarnation, the cross, the church age, the second advent or the return of Christ, and then stretching indefinitely into the eternity future. All of that is at an instant, entirely accessible, it's entirely known by God, all at once. He sees and knows all that takes place in his creation, all at an instant. He does not have to flip through pages. He does not have to look through the corridors of time, which is a, a bit of an unfortunate um, mis uh, caricature of the way that non-Calvinists conceive of God's foreknowledge. Uh, but he doesn't have to peer through the corridors of time or observe or fast forward or rewind. He knows it and sees it everywhere, all the time, all at one exact moment, the instant of God's existence. All right, so that's what I'm talking about when I'm uh, trying to apply or, or why I think that this analogy is so apt with whatever deficiencies it, it likely has. 
It captures all of these aspects of the God-creation relation, that the author, just like the author creates a story, God creates a creation. Just like the author, or just like the characters in the story experience an act, so too do creatures, and so on and so forth. All of these aspects that we have identified, and there are others, you, you could add that God becomes creation in the sense that he becomes incarnate. You could add that God loves creation. Anyway, all the various aspects of this relationship between God and creation are captured fairly aptly by the analogy of an author in a story in a way that no other analogy I have encountered does. Now, I've belabored this point because I want, when, when Braxton comes on in two weeks and we discuss this, I want to give him a lot of um, material to, to think about a lot of fodder to shoot at, because no, inevitably he and I will be discussing the um, implications of this analogy when it comes to determinism. That was part of the phone call we had. Um, and so I'm just trying to be as thorough as possible, uh, even if it means that I'm um, belaboring the point a little bit, so that he has some some uh, thoughts, some time to ruminate and think about this analogy, and, and, and we'll have some really good talking points. But this is, so this is the, what the analogy is meant to capture. Now, what I want to do is in a very cursory, very underdeveloped way, um, I want to suggest some ways that we might start to think about how this analogy can bear fruit in our work as theologians and as apologists. So I've come up with this list of various areas. This is not exhaustive. Um, there are certainly others, uh, other areas of theology and apologetics where we might apply this analogy, and, and no doubt several of these I will be discussing with Braxton and then subsequently with, with Parker. Um, they're up on the screen, and I'll just go through them one by one. The first three of them, or four of them, I have some additional thoughts to, or some some thoughts written down that we'll go through. And then for the last three, for no other reason than that I didn't have time to prepare for this episode, uh, I will just I, I won't have anything up on the screen except for the category that you see on your screen right now, just to give you a heads up. But at least for the few first few of these, I've been able to give it a little bit more thought, and I want to begin with time and creation. So, one of the things that scientists have been able to prove is that space and time are not independent from one another. They are both part of the fabric of the cosmos. They are interwoven together. Um, we know this because, we, we know, for example, that the, um, if, if, the, the, the gravitational pull of a very massive object, so there you're talking about space, can affect the passage or experience of time. So you've got space affecting time. And similarly, um, I have, if I'm not mistaken, the, the closer that you get to the speed of light, the closer your mass approaches infinity, right? So now you've got speed, which is a function of time, affecting space, right? So, so space and time are both part of the fabric of the cosmos. They don't, they're, not inter, inter, they're not independent from one another. But what does that mean? Or, or how, what is the relevance of this? Well, I have heard atheists mock the idea of theistic creation by saying something like, how could God decide and act to create before, and of course here I have to use the word before because he's creating time. What do, you, what do we even mean when we say before time? How could God decide and act to create before the existence of time? This is not that uncommon of an atheistic uh, objection to uh, theism, 
to theistic creation? Well, applying the analogy, it's really, it's really straightforward. Just as authors exist outside, not before their stories, so God exists outside of created time. You see, yes, in the storyline of the story, there is nothing before the beginning of the story. Right? When, we, when, uh, when, we op- when we crack open a book and the very first line is once upon a time, there's nothing before the once upon a time. That is the beginning. And yet, that story was created, wasn't it? So, um, so likewise, the reason we can say and trust that the creation, even though time, it includes time itself, even though time itself, as we experience it, is created, that's no challenge to the idea that God be- created time itself and the space uh, that it is interwoven with as a fabric. It just, it, it's perfectly sensible. But there's more that we could say here. Um, I mentioned earlier uh, the concept of God upholding creation, right? And if you think about it, at every moment that a character exists in its story, the character exists only because and so long as its author wills it to, right? If, 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 if the author um, never creates a character in the story, then a character will not exist. If the character if the if the um story does include the creation of a character at some point in the storyline of the of the um of the uh of the story then that character will continue to exist in the storyline of the uh, of of the story the the timeline of the story only so long as the author wills it to well the same is true with god and creation at every moment that a creature exists in created time it exists only because and so long as God wills it to. And this seems, uh, it might seem, a little bit difficult to wrap our minds around, but consider the movie The NeverEnding Story, with which I opened this episode of The Apologetics. If you're not familiar with the story, I won't give too much of it away, but suffice it to say, the big dilemma, the big problem that the protagonists are trying to solve in the never-ending story and that is ravaging the world of Fantasia. Fantasia is the is the world inside the story that Bastion is reading. The the big problem, the big dilemma is called the nothing. And it's and when they say the nothing, they mean the nothing. They don't mean merely the destruction of something. Throughout the movie, you see these scenes in which wind and swirly clouds are, are destroying things, but it's not really merely about destruction. Um, so there's a point, there's a, a scene in the movie where somebody says, uh, where uh, one of the characters says something like, there used to be this lake there, and now it's gone. And somebody says, what, there's just a hole there? And the character says, no, a hole would be something. But no, it was taken away by the nothing. There is nothing there. And and what we discover throughout the course of the movie, spoiler alert, if you really want to see this movie and don't want to be spoiled, then here's your chance to mute for about 10 seconds or so. But the the um, uh, the reason why the nothing is is a problem and is and is destroying Fantasia is because people the fantasy people aren't fantasizing anymore. And obviously there I don't mean in a, in a crude way. I mean they're not imagining. So the, um, there is no human mind to ground the existence of Fantasia. And so Fantasia is falling apart. The nothing is taking over. 
So it's not all that difficult to wrap our minds around. It's actually something that, given the right level of creativity, we can uh, we can somewhat understand, get our minds around. Here's another application when it comes to time and creation. Just as the just as a story is the brainchild of its, or, because um, a story is the brainchild of its author, a story is very naturally going to reflect the author's nature and character, right? So if the uh, author of the story is um, foolish and, and, and nonsensical, then the story is just going to be full of plot holes and craziness and ludicrousness and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, if the author of the story is absolutely wicked, then the uh, heroes in the story might be villains, Um like, for example, and this is going to not be a perfect analogy, but consider the Watchmen. The Watchmen are like, they are a, a team of anti-heroes, right? We're familiar with superheroes like the Avengers, but the Watchmen are anti-heroes in as much as they have the same kinds of superpowers that the Avengers have, but they're deeply, deeply, deeply flawed people and even wicked in some important ways. So... Theoretically, you know, it, it's conceivable that the person who created the Watchmen in the story could have some psychological issues going on, right? I'm not saying he does. I'm just saying it's reasonable to expect a story, because it's the brainchild of its author, to reflect, at least to some degree, the nature and character of its author. Well, so likewise, what do we read in Scripture about creation? That it reflects the nature and character of its author, God. That's why Paul says in Romans 1 that everyone is without excuse because the glory of God is written into the things that have been made. And just as one example of how the nature and character of God is reflected in his creation, creation is ordered, it's logical, it's reasonable. And this is a very powerful apologetic, by the way, for the, the for Christian theism, is that the, the universe is not disordered, it's not illogical, it's logical and it's ordered. And, and that is not something that you would have any reason to expect if, even if this were even conceivable, creation came about randomly, or, you know, by no, um, without having been created by a mind. But the fact that it's ordered is an indication that it was created by, an, by a god of order, a creator of order. All right? So here are just a few th ways that we might start to think about how to apply the god as author analogy to time and creation. Let's start to explore, and again, these are all introductory, cursory, incohate, um, underdeveloped. I'm just trying to get our minds going, our juices flowing, so that over the course of the next couple of months, as, as I go through this series, we'll be able to explore further this analogy and its implications. Next, look, look, let's look at the concepts of theophany and revelation, all right? So if the question could be asked, uh, God transcends creation the way that an author transcends one's story, then how can God be imminent in creation, right? The author of a story is wholly other, totally outside of the story that the author conceives. 
And if that's analogous to God and creation, if God transcends and is outside of and is, ab is above and beyond and not in creation, then how can he also be imminent? Imminent is, is, what we, is what theologians use to describe the fact that God is involved in creation. He's not a part of it, but he is near it. He's involved in it. He cares for it. He is active in it. Right? He just doesn't exist in it. So if God transcends it, how the way that an author transcends his story, well, then how can God be imminent in it? Well, think about this. An author can easily interact within the story by simply writing him or herself in as an otherworldly visitor. And this actually has happened. Um, in comics, there's at least one issue of one of Stan Lee's comics in which Stan Lee draws himself in. In C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis's The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis writes himself in as a character of a story. I want to say, was it Dante himself included himself as a character in his, in his uh, poem, uh, in The Inferno? I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly, but this is, not, this is not all that unusual in the world of art. This is something we're not all that uh, unfamiliar with. Um, now, obviously, when an author of a story writes him or herself into the story, the author isn't actually interacting, but that's only because when we're talking about authors and stories, the story isn't real. Nothing is actually happening. But of course, this is an analogy. And if you take that analogy and add the reality that, that um, in, in the thing it's supposed to be an analogy for, the creation is happening. It is real, albeit contingent upon the mind of God. If you, if you take that into consideration, then if the author writes himself into that story, then inside the story, he is interacting with the other characters in the story. And sure enough, we see the same thing happening between God and creation in the pages of scripture itself. We as you know, theologians call them theophanies, appearances of God. In fact, the never-ending story has something just like it. Because in the final um, several minutes of the movie, Bastion, the boy on the right, has a conversation with the Empress, the girl on the left. Even though the Empress is part of the created world Fantasia. Again, just an analogy, but the point is the concept of somebody outside the story being written into the story and, and, and communicating with, interacting with the characters in the story um, seems uh, feasible. I mean, it seems relatable, even if we don't, in real life, experience anything like it. So there's theophany, but also consider revelation. In a story, it, uh, characters could, would, could have little to no knowledge of its author unless the author self-reveals. Now, by the way, why do I say little to no? For, for the very reason I, I, I said earlier, which is that the story will almost invariably, almost inevitably reflect something about the nature and character of, this, of the author. Right? Um... So we are able to discern from certain features of creation that there is a God and that this God has some characteristics. This is a very common and I think very powerful apologetics argument. But that can only get you so far and there's a wealth, a vast, indeed infinite wealth of information about our creator that we cannot know. And likewise, there's a vast 
finite but very very vast amount of knowledge about an author that its character that the characters in the story will never know unless the author self reveals well guess what likewise god has got to reveal himself to his creatures if they are to know him in any significant way yeah we can discern that there's a god we can discern that this god is omnipotent and uh personal and uh m you know morally good there there's some things that we can discern but to know god in any meaningful significant way he's got to reveal himself because he transcends creation in the way that um, an author transcends its story. Also, um, characters in a story don't have any way of really confidently predicting the future. Um, yes, if the story is very ordered, very logical, then there will be some kind of cause and effect relationships reflected in the story that theoretically the characters could extrapolate from to make certain predictions. I mean, it'd be like the scientific method, right? Um, but they wouldn't have confident. They wouldn't have any a confident ability to predict the future in terms of future events, uh, historic, you know, events between nations and peoples, choices that people might make or whatever. But an author of a story knowing what those subsequent chapters in the story are going to uh what is going to happen in those subsequent chapters could reveal aspects of these future chapters to characters in the story in earlier chapters and this is not at all unlike the fact that god can reveal the future to his prophets as he often does in both old and new testament so we have, so there are, and, and again, this is just introductory cursory ways of thinking about how this analogy might be applied to theophany and revelation. But let's now turn to another one then, anthropology and identity. Anthropology is the study of humanity, the study of humankind. Consider that the cells in a human's body are replaced every few years. And the psyche, the mind, the, the, the person's um, personal identity is always changing, right? You are not the exact same person that you were when you were a month old. You've grown a lot. You're not even the same um, person in, significant, in certain significant senses that you were when you were a teenager, if you're uh, an elderly or middle-aged adult like I am. Right? You've had life experiences and observations and things have happened to you and so forth that are, that are constantly affecting your character, who it is you are. Your memories are growing and you're losing memories, right? You're constantly changing. And of course, your body is too. And so this has led a number of atheists to question the very notion of a self, right? If, if I am who I am right now, but six years from now, every single, it's six years or it's some number of years, the cells of a body are completely replaced. If six years from now, every cell, every part of my body that is here now isn't there six years from now and they've all been replaced. Um, and let's say for the sake of argument that we don't have immaterial souls or spirits to provide some sort of um, continuity of identity over time. What, how, how then can we even speak of a self? Well, 
I'm proposing that the the identity of a character in a story isn't grounded in the nature of that character, not its body, whatever physical matter is conceived of in that story, <clears throat> not an immaterial soul if the author of the story has created immaterial souls. No, the identity of a character in a story is grounded in the author of the story. The, the author who conceives of the character Atreyu, when Atreyu... Um, uh, again, spoiler alert, so mute if you uh, haven't want, seen it and want to see it and don't want to be surprised. The author who conceives of the character Atreyu um, being overtaken by the nothing at the end is the same author who has Bastion um, recreate Fantasia, including Atreyu. Right, so the, so the author, the one who created Atreyu, is the one who says that the returned Atreyu, when Fantasia is reborn, is the same Atreyu. Let alone the Atreyu at the very beginning of the movie is the Atreyu when his horse uh, dies in the in the um, the swamp of sadness. Right, it's not anything about Atreyu that makes him Atreyu or that that, that makes him uniquely Atreyu. It's the author's conception of Atreyu that grounds the identity of a of identity of Atreyu. And so likewise, I think we can ground the identity of a human being no matter how many changes he undergoes or she undergoes, whether those changes are physical or, or non-physical, and whether those changes are only partial or complete, we can still trust that that person is still the person that he or she has always been because God is the author of the story. And God has knowledge of who a person is throughout his or her existence. Um, think about, here's a way to help maybe help think about this a little bit. Let's say that you are in the woods all alone, nobody's with you, and an alien from another uh, uh, galaxy arrives and um, replaces you with a clone of you. Um, and then destroys the real you. And let's say that the clone of you has all the same memories, the exact same character, everything as you had. How you wouldn't know, I mean, you wouldn't even be you, but the clone of you wouldn't know that it's a clone of you. It has all the same memories, everything. It would think it's you. How, how could anybody know it's not really you? But if God is the one who's in who in whom your identity is grounded then god would know that's not really you and he could snap his fingers so to speak and replace the clone of you with the real you again even though there was a gap between when you were destroyed and replaced by a clone and then on the other end of the gap you're brought back and the clone's destroyed god knows it's you your identity is grounded in your creator your unchanging, um, everlasting creator. That's how I think we can ground identity. And I think that this can apply to anthropology as well. Um, one of I, Those of you who know, have followed my ministry for any time will know that I'm what's called a non-reductive physicalist. I do not believe that human beings have immaterial souls that continue to exist beyond death. Now, I don't hold on. I hold to this very loosely. I don't hold on to it very firmly. I'm not... Um, I'm not 100% certain by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm way more convinced 
that conditional immortality is true, that the Trinity is true, that the deity of Christ is true, so on and so forth. But I am, for the time being at least, convinced of non-reductive physicalism. Now, one of the uh, common objections to physicalism, both by, well, in this case, by Christians, is that you could not have genuine resurrection if you don't have an immaterial soul. Why? Because you have no way of grounding the fact that the person who dies is the same person who rises, if there's nothing to connect the two. When the person dies and, and his or her conscience um, or consciousness vanishes, ceases to function and disappears entirely, and then the body deteriorates away and you know becomes dirt, and then God raises it from the dead, the, uh, the, 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 that, that body recreates it and, and, and restores the mind. Because there's this gap, how is there any way to trust or even make possible, consider as possible, the idea that the person who rises is indeed the same person who fell asleep, who died? Right? Um, in other words, how can you trust that when you cease to be conscious at the resurrection, it's you who had been unconscious for some time who res whose consciousness is restored? That's the argument against physicalism. Um, by Christian dualists. I propose that this, this analogy resolves that conundrum. If physicalism is true, then just as the identity of a character is grounded in its author, so the identity of a human is grounded in his or her creator, God. I may cease to exist in the world of the story when I die and my body rots away and my consciousness is gone. God will be the one who knows that it's me and grounds that it's me when he raises me from the dead. I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. But let's move on now to another area, and this is where it's going to start to get hairy, and I'm only going to touch on this a little bit. But no doubt, Braxton and I, and then two weeks later, um, Parker and I will be discussing this at greater length. But... Another thing that you will know about me, if you've watched previous videos in this channel or followed my ministry for any period of time, is that I'm a theological determinist. I believe that everything that takes place in time has been foreordained, predetermined by God to take place exactly as it does. And one objection by um, libertarian free will uh, advocates, including Braxton, I'm not sure about Parker, I think he's a Calvinist, um, but by Braxton even, is if theological determinism is true, then how can one in any sense be free and morally responsible? Now this is a tough question, arguably, but I think that this analogy helps us to solve it somewhat. Because think about this. Go, go back to the never-ending story and, and think about Atreyu. This is actually the very example I gave Braxton when I was talking to him on the phone uh, several days ago. I said, um, imagine you're a Treyu, and you're deciding whether or not to go through the Swamp of Sadness with your horse. It's the fastest way. In fact, you have to go through it to get to the turtle-like creature that uh, I think was called an oracle of some sort, if I remember correctly. Um, and you're deciding whether or not you're going to... It's risky, right? If you, if you succumb to the depths of the Swamp of Sadness, you, you die. But you need to get through it. So how does he... So, so he chooses to go through it. Well, think about your Atreyu in that moment. What is forcing your hand? You don't have any sort of um, 
influence external to you in the world of Fantasia that is forcing you to do anything. There's no chain of cause and events that is mechanistically like a chain of dominoes causing you to choose whether or not to go through the Swamp of Sadness. There's nobody pulling strings on your arms as if you were a puppet. There's no, there's no programming in your code that is forcing you um, against your will or even in concert with your will to, or, or causing your will to do what you choose to do. You just do it. You choose to do it. You're a Treyu and you decide, this is what I'm going to do. I've weighed my options. Um, I'm a free agent. Nothing is forcing my hand. I'm going to go through the Swamp of Sadness. And yet... The author is the one who predetermined that that's exactly what Atreyu will do. Here's another way to think of it. Uh, one of Braxton's arguments in his recent debate with Matt Dillahunty, or no, 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 sorry. Um, he, his debate on an Unbelievable with uh, Atheist, I don't re recall who it was, but it was about, um, uh, uh, it was about libertarian free will. Shannon, no, there's no, <laughs> the, the, you, there is no, argument to be made that freedom equals being the first mover. And, and this, this goes to what I was going to say. Um, Braxton has argued that his definition of libertarian free will is that the choice originates in you. Where does that choice... Uh, there isn't um, some point at which go, uh, the author of The NeverEnding Story is inserting the choice to go through the Swamp of Sadness into Atreyu's mind. There's nothing like that. Atreyu weighs his options, chooses to go through the Swamp of Sadness, and executes his choice. It originates in him. Of course, God predetermined that it would originate in Atreyu, but nevertheless, it originates in, Atre in Atreyu. If, if, you, if you think about the state of Atreyu's mind at the point where he's got to make that decision... Nothing gets added to, every th to, to his mind or to everything else in the universe from outside of it to cause him to make the choice. He just does it because it's what he deems to be the right course of action. Yeah, Susan, it might have been Dan Barker. So, so, so think about it. Braxton defines libertarian free will not as the ability to do otherwise, but as the choice originates in you. You are a self-determiner. You determine what you will do. And secondly, in his debate with Dan Barker on Unbelievable, if that was indeed who it was, he said that we have an instinct, a, a, an intuition that we all seem to share. It's virtually universal that we have libertarian free will. And I said to him on the phone, I said, Braxton, I think you're wrong. I don't think we actually do have that intuition. Here is the intuition that we all do have, though. At any given moment, I can choose what I'm going to do. And I'm not being forced to choose what I choose to do. Despite my upbringing, despite my experiences, despite my biases, despite my predilections, despite what's going on around me, I can still choose what I want to do. I can even choose to do what I don't want to do. Right? Um, if I deem that there are reasons worth doing so, I can do all of that. And I betray you had the ability to do all of that in the story. Nothing from outside of Fantasia was sticking its finger into Fantasia, let alone anything outside of Atreyu within Fantasia. Nothing is causing Atreyu to choose what he chooses to do. Nevertheless, his choice was predetermined by the author. And, and I think that we as 
sorry, going back to the issue of intuition, I think we all intuit that we can make this choice, that there's nothing outside of us in the universe that we are in that is causing us guaranteeing that we will do one thing or another. We are the ones who ultimately make that decision. And this analogy captures that and predeterminism. There's nothing in there's nothing from outside that is forcing the character, causing the character to choose what he chooses to do. And indeed, inside the world of the story, the choice originates in the character's mind. It does not come from without. Again, the author is not. Remember, the author is outside of the story. They're not parallel timelines. The author isn't dipping his finger in at just the right time and, and inserting a, an idea into Atreyu's mind. So the, 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 the choice originates in Atreyu's mind. It just happens to be predetermined by the author. So likewise, I think that this is um, at least a step toward demonstrating that, pre, that theological determinism can be true without it being causal determinism. Causal determinism in the literature refers to the naturalistic, atheistic view of determinism, where, like a chain of dominoes, the past series of ch uh, chain of causes and events eventually works its way up to you, and then you're just another domino in the, in the series of dominoes. So all those past things inevitably cause you to do what you're going to do. That's causal determinism. And people like Leighton Flowers, whom I respect and, and, and love, um, and Tim Stratton, whom I respect and love, and Braxton Hunter, whom I, whom I respect and love, will use the phrase causal determinism to describe theological determinism, and they're doing so inappropriately, illegitimately. Because again, God is not, at the moment that Atreyu decides what he's going to do, causing him to do what he does. So I think that God can predetermine choices without causing them in a way similar to, or at least analogous to, um, the way that God, that an author predetermines what takes place in the story. And again, in two weeks, I'll be talking with Braxton more about that and other things that I've been talking about in this episode. Now we're to the parts where I haven't had enough time to really, you know, flesh out the way I think the um, analogy starts to apply. Um, so I'm only going to touch on these ever so briefly, but let's take the issues of morality and theodicy. Um, when it comes to morality... Uh, if God is outside of creation the way that an author is outside of a story, then God gets to define the rules, as it were. God gets to define in the world of the story, uh, in, the, in the world of creation, what is objectively right and wrong, in the same way that the author of a story is the one who determines what's ethical, what's right, what's moral, what's right and wrong in the story that he conceives. But more to the poor, but but additionally, um, and this is not bare mere divine command theory. For those of you who don't know, the uh, divine command theory is one very popular, I think, Christian conception of morality. It's the idea that what is good and what is evil are what God declares to be good and evil. Divine command theory, and one of the problems that has been um, alleged. To, uh, to, to, to be insurmountable by divine command theory is, is that it makes, it results in the, the paradox of did, uh, is what is good, good because God determines that it is? Or does God say it's good because it's good? You can't have it both ways, allegedly. 
Right, so if we just accept a, mere, a raw, bare, um, uh, unnuanced divine command theory, then God could be an evil, an evil God, and His commands would, if divine command theory is true, be good or evil based on what this evil God deems to be good or evil, which will likely be something like the reverse. But those would not be commands that we would actually want to follow if we want to be good and evil. Or, sorry, if we want to be good. <coughs> so so that is allegedly a problem for divine command theory. But um, what if what we said earlier is true? And the, the world of a story will reflect the nature and character of the author. Well, then likewise, creation and its ethical rules, its moral rules, um, yes, those rules are the, are, are, are the de- what are declared by or deemed to be good and evil by God, but they will reflect God's own character, his own nature. What is good is good, and God has decreed it as good because it is, it is what he is. He's good. And, and and moreover, it's loving because he is caring about the characters in the story. And so the rules that he sets in place in the story are going to reflect his own care for his own creatures. So it's, it's divine command theory, but without the problems that divine command theory is sometimes alleged to face. Or so it seems to me. But more to the point on this area that I want to start thinking about how the analogy might apply is the area of theodicy. Um, very often the the objection is raised by atheists that, look, if, um, if, uh, if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving, then there would be no evil. But why would we assume that to be the case if God transcends creation in the way that an author transcends a story? Think, I'll just give one example of what I'm talking about here. An author will very often feel a tremendous amount of grief, sadness, remorse even, even cry when, uh, when the author conceives of the protagonist in the story suffering great injustice. Not even just the protagonist, but like a whole population of people in the story suffering at the hands of some brutal, evil tyrant who kills them all, genocide. The author wrote that, wrote that evil, included it in the story that that the author has created. And yet, it feels incredible remorse and sadness and grief over these incredible evils that are done to the protagonist and other characters in the story. And yet, the author has the omnipotence and the omniscience to be able to prevent those things from happening to the protagonists and other characters in the story. Why will the author preordain, predetermine this to happen? Because there's purpose in it. The author is trying to tell a story that um, that has purpose and and the characters in the story and the things that happen to them have purpose when the protagonist here here's another example kind of continuing building upon what i just said uh in in the movie braveheart uh mel gibson plays um uh, william wallace and toward the end of the toward the end of the movie William Wallace, being played by Mel Gibson, is um, tortured viciously and killed by the British. 
And as he's being killed, he, if I remember correctly, he cries out something, he cries out something about freedom. I don't, I don't remember. I think he just cries out freedom as he's being disemboweled. His intestines are being pulled out of his body and then ultimately he dies. Um, but think about what that does. The martyrdom of William Wallace becomes the catalyst for, um, is it, is it, uh, Roger the Bruce? Uh, something the Bruce um, leading a uh, Scottish army to go and fight back against the British. And prior to that point, the Bruce would just was not getting involved the way that he should have. So you can see, imperfectly, that the great injustice and pain, uh, the, the injustice and pain inflicted upon William Wallace serves a purpose in the story. And so likewise, I think that just as an author will tell a story, will conceive of a story that includes injustice and evil and pain and suffering, but without having, without being himself evil and wanting characters to suffer these things, can nevertheless have a purpose for including those things in the story. And so likewise, I think, with God and creation. What about incarnation and kenosis? Now, I want to be really clear here. I am not advocating for uh, kenosis as traditionally understood. Kenosis is the idea that when God became incarnate, when God the Son became incarnate, he divested himself of certain divine attributes and ceased to be certain things that God the Son was prior to his incarnation. Um, this analogy actually says, no, kenosis isn't true. But it also offers a way of thinking about incarnation that is relatable, sensible, and allows for the transcendent author to experience genuinely the limitations of his creation. So imagine, if you will, an author writes a story popular, uh, in a, in a, that takes place in a two-dimensional world with two-dimensional characters, flat two-dimensional characters. This author, this three-dimensional author of the story, might become, might choose to become incarnate in the story as a two-dimensional character. And as that two-dimensional character, he's going to be limited by the constraints that, a two that his two-dimensional world imposes on any other two-dimensional character in the story. And yet, the, the, the three-dimensional author outside of the story is not changed into a two-dimensional creature, or limited by a world of two dimensions outside of that two-dimensional world. So likewise, we can easily conceive, well, thank you, Susan, Robert the Bruce, I got the RO right. But anyway, it was the, it was the martyrdom there of, of, uh, of uh, William Wallace, at least in the movie, I don't know what it was like in real history, that, that, that was the catalyst of getting Robert the Bruce genuinely involved. Anyway, so likewise, God the Son is like you know, a transcendent being outside of the created cosmos and created space-time, but he can and did choose to become incarnate in the world as a limited three-dimensional creature, three-dimensional human being. Um, God, the Son, outside of the world of the story is omniscient and omnipotent, and omnipresent. But in the story, the incarnate Son is finite in knowledge, finite in power, and finite in presence. And yet it's at the same time, and, and I'm, I should put that in quotes, it's at the same time, both God and man. Why? Because 
God uh, outside the world of creation is is God, and he's also in the world as a human. So it's God and man, one person at the same time. But at the same time has to be in quotes because God is outside of time. So this accounts for how the hypostatic union can be true, the the um, the divine nature outside of created time and the human nature inside of time are united in the person, the personal identity of the Son. The Son outside of time is unchanged by his incarnation. The Son inside time incarnate, incarnated is limited by all the constraints of humanity. And... All of this is true without kenosis, because kenosis is, is the idea of emptying. It's it's uh, the, the Greek word in Philippians 2, where it talks about the son emptying himself. That's the, a word from which we get kenosis. But there's no emptying in this uh, metaphysical sense that kenosis theory is meant to capture, the idea that God divested himself of divine attributes when he became incarnate, because God outside of time is unchanged. And from the moment of his incarnation, God the Son has been limited as a human being. So it, just, it utterly gets rid of the need for kenosis theory, and yet still maintains this robust idea of incarnation and the hypostatic union. So I think we've got something really powerful here. One last area, and I'll only touch upon this briefly. Um, with eternity and immortality, we can apply this analogy and realize that what is meant by immortality is not really the ability never to die as if you become completely independent from your creator, but rather the uh, immortality that you enjoy and experience into eternity future is one in which you do never die. Why do you never die? Because the transcendent author, God, deems that you don't. And eternity, uh, atheists often um, question whether eternity could be enjoyable indefinitely for all eternity because eventually you'll get bored. You'll do everything there is to do, encounter everything, experience everything there is to, to experience or encounter and so forth. But if God is like the author of a story, and if God is infinite, then the things to do, the experiences to experience throughout eternity could never possibly could conceivably never be exhausted there will always be things to do and experience and enjoy all throughout eternity without ever getting bored um because god is infinite and he is creating an infinitely future uh world for you to live in so i think that there may be ways to apply this analogy to concepts of eternity and immortality as well again all of this has just been underdeveloped, introductory, cursory, etc. I'm just trying to get our brain juices flowing, so to speak, so that over the course of the next uh, two, four, six, maybe weeks, um, we can begin to explore this analogy more. Um, between now and two weeks from now, and there's only four of you watching now, I, apparently I lost about half of you, sorry I'm so boring, but for those of you who stick around or those of you who watch afterwards, um, between now and when you're watching this and the next episode, which is two weeks from when I'm recording, uh, Monday, December 28th, I want you to be thinking about these and other areas in uh, and how, uh, in other areas of theology and apologetics, and how this analogy might be applied in helpful ways, because I think I'm starting to touch upon something here. And I'm look, really looking forward to discussing them further and exploring them further with Braxton in two weeks and then Parker in four weeks. But one thing I want to really emphasize is that while I do think 
that I came up with a, uh, this idea on my own. I, I don't think I ever heard somebody tell me about the benefits of thinking of the relation between God and creation as analogous to the relation between an author and story. Uh, and although all the thoughts I've put here, uh, ways of applying the analogy are all my own, nevertheless, like any, like virtually anything that a theologian comes up with today, um, I'm not the first to think about it. And if you've got the time and the resources and you want to explore this analogy further between now and when I come back in two weeks with Braxton and then another two weeks after that with Parker, I want to give you a few resources that maybe you can check out. I have not read any of these, but they have, they have all been commended to me, and I'm looking forward to taking, checking out some of them um, before the next couple of episodes. One of them is in part three, The Doctrine of God, in John Frame's Systematic Theology. All right. So in his Doctrine of God, he talks about this analogy. Um, I know that he applies it to predeterminism, theological determinism, uh, but he may do so in other areas as well. You can also check out Kevin Van Hooser's Remythologizing Theology, which is a bit of a mouthful. But this is actually a um, the the book and author and analogy that uh, Parker Setacase works with the most in his thesis, which we'll be discussing in four weeks from now. You can also check out Hugh McCann's Creation and the Sovereignty of God. Hugh discusses this analogy in that book. By the title, you can tell that it's probably largely about determinism. Um, Calvinism and the Problem of Evil is an edited volume, and James Anderson, a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, has a chapter called Calvinism and the First Sin. Um, and I'm told that this chapter is one in which Anderson trades on the analogy of author and story. Gavin Ortland, in his book Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, has a chapter uh, chapter four in which he um, he calls this analogy a metaphor. And who knows? Maybe God as author is is better called a metaphor than an analogy. But either way, um, uh, but either way, the point is is that he discusses this concept of comparing God and creation to a, an author and a story. In, like I said, chapter four of his book, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. And then one last recommendation um, that I'll pass on is a book by Dorothy Sayers called Mind of the Maker. This is from, I think, the 1940s originally, um, but uh, this is it's spoken of as, in here as well. I, th I, I thought I had one more in here. In fact, I know I did, but for some reason I didn't put it in here. There's also a book called um, God as Author, which I have purchased on Kindle, um, and it's written by uh, somebody that I've forgotten the name of. Oh well. If you just look up God as author on Amazon, you'll be able to find it. But so those are some resources that you can check out. And uh, Jamie asks if these will be in the description of the video. Um, I will try to update the description of the video and include them so that you can um, follow up on them. But, uh, uh, but if I don't get around to it, I apologize in advance. So if you have stuck around for all of this, first of all, thank you so much. Um, several of you uh, did not. <laughs> and I don't know if that's because I'm boring or you had other stuff you had to do. But, you know, that's a great thing about doing these YouTube live streams is that they end up getting automatically um, archived into the channel as soon as it's done streaming. So I'm assuming I'll get some more views between now. Thank you, Susan. Gene Fant. Gene C. Fant Jr. The book is called uh, God as Author. And that's one I would encourage you to check out as well. So between now and two weeks from now, Monday, December 28th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, when I will be interviewing Braxton Hunter and we'll be discussing this analogy further, maybe check out some of the resources I've commended here. But even if you don't, be thinking about 
um, about this analogy or metaphor, as Gavin puts it, of the relationship between an author and his or her story, be thinking about whether the things that I said to, in order to justify the analogy at the beginning of this episode, um, if those hold up under scrutiny, your own scrutiny, Think about whether there are holes in my justification that you might be able to find. Maybe you can find further justification. Maybe you can find a better analogy, although I suspect it will fall victim to one of those flaws that those other analogies falls victim, fall victim to. And then also be thinking about how this analogy might be well or poorly applied to various areas of theology and apologetics. Um, one obvious example is if is, is whether or not this analogy, if applied to the relation between God and creation, makes God the author of evil. Um, and, you know, a, a whole host of things comes along with that. How are, are people, can people be said to be genuinely responsible for what they do? Is there any sense in which we could say people are free if they are, if, if their actions have been predetermined the way a character's in a story has, have been predetermined by the author? And these are things I'll be discussing with Braxton and with Parker two weeks later. So be thinking about these things. Maybe check out some of these resources. Um, but I'm really excited, probably more, probably more so than any of you. I'm really excited excited for this series and, and for my upcoming discussions with Braxton and Parker, and I hope that on some level you're excited too, because I really think we're going to have some fascinating, thought-provoking discussions and um, maybe um, come to some really profound uh, insights and revelations together, things that really help us um, make sense of the world we're in, make sense of what scripture says about God and creation, and so on and so forth. Um, Jamie says in the comments, I saw a reformed philosopher who died somewhat recently who had similar concepts when answering, could God have created other possible worlds? You see, here's this is a question worth considering, too. Um, Kyperian Berean asks, am I infralapsarian or superlapsarian? Um, the answer is, I don't take a position on that distinction. The For those of you who aren't aware... Infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism are two views about the logical, not temporal, but logical relationship between God's decree to save the elect and his decree for the fall to happen with Adam and Eve. Um, so one of the, I can never remember if it's infra or superlapsarianism, but one of them says that first, and by first I mean logically, not temporally, Okay, not in time, but in logical sequence. First, God decrees that Adam and Eve will fall. And then, having decreed that in logical sequence, again, not time sequence, not temporal sequence, but logical sequence, then, having decreed that, he then decrees that he will save the elect, whom he goes on to choose. That is either infralapsarianism or superlapsarianism. Superlapsarianism, or the other one, is the reverse. So, whereas one says that the decree for the fall to happen logically precedes the decree to save the elect, uh, no, Susan, that's not what infralapsarianism is. This is a mistake. Um, some people mistakenly think, and, and I'm willing to be corrected on this, okay, so you can prove me wrong if I'm wrong. Um, some people think that infralapsarianism is the view that the fall wasn't part of God's plan, that he didn't decree it, but that's not true. I think Kyperian Berean is is uh, more along the right order. So this is the way Kyperian says it. Infralapsarianism says that God decrees the fall, then elects and 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 reprobates. 
Whereas super lapsarian says God elects and reprobates logically, and then and then logically, not temporally, but then logically decrees the fall. Uh, and what I'm saying is, I don't have a position on those, and frankly, I don't think that's. To me, it sounds like arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, right? Um, what seems clear to me, and I stress that seems clear to me, is that according to Scripture, God does indeed preordain everything that is going to happen. No, Shannon, it's not based on sin, because God Himself decrees sin in Calvinism and theological determinism. So whether, um, well, I guess I'm in good company, Kyperion, then if Herman Bovink also didn't take a position. Again, I don't see any, okay, so Susan says an infralapsarian election was only made part of God's plan after the fall. That might be true. That's what I'm saying, Susan, but the, but the fall was his plan in infralapsarianism. You see, Susan, it's, infralapsarian is not the view that God allowed Adam and Eve to fall of their own free, libertarian free will and then decreed election. No, that's not infralapsarianism. Infralapsarianism is the view that he decreed the fall to happen, and then based upon that, in logical order, he decrees reprobation and election, whereas the other view is the other way around. And again, to me, this seems like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It has no bearing, I think, on anything that we could even possibly conceive of. So, so you know, people have characterized me as an infralapsarian or an in, a supralapsarian, whichever one it is, but it's not. I'm neither. I am a full-throated uh, theological determinist. I don't think there is anything that has ever, or, uh, has ever taken place or will take place that was not foreordained by God to happen. Hopefully that helps. Jamie says, what is time to omnipresence and his relation to the story he has created? Well, that's just it, Jamie. Um, in the author story analogy, time is purely a, a, a characteristic of the created story. Now, the author is also in a time-space continuum in the analogy, um, but that time isn't the time that's taking place in the story. And yes, Susan, that means I'm stuck with you. It was God's plan. But I'll tell you what, the chat in here is so great on this episode that I'm very glad to, that this was part of God's plan. Um, uh, so time is, is part of the created world, at least the time in which the characters live and move. Um, we, the characters in the story, experience that passage of time, not the author. And, and, and therefore, the author is at all times and at all places in the story there to know and see and, 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 and witness what goes on. Indeed, he's written what goes on there. Um, that's one of the benefits of this analogy is that it captures that omnipresence and omniscience of God. Anyway, uh, I, I'm starting to ramble now. And, and if I told my wife I'd only go for an hour and I've gone for an hour and a half. So I'm going to wrap things up now. But I've really enjoyed this. And again, I'm super excited to continue the discussion with Braxton two weeks from today, Monday, December 28th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. And then two weeks later, Parker Setacase will be joining me to discuss further um, this analogy. And then maybe I'll do one after that. So we've got a really fascinating thought provoking Good, Susan, your brain hurts. So does mine. That's the goal. Um, let's let's think through this together, and, and let, this is going to be really cool, and I think really um, uh, insightful and thought-provoking. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you for embarking upon this journey with me, assuming that you have indeed planned to continue the journey with me, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, bye-bye. I've been your host, Chris Date. And thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...